Welcome to this episode of the Million Dollar Mastermind. I'm Larry Wydell, and let's get started. How about if you share, I'd be curious to, to hear you share the kinds of things. Mm-hmm. People come to you when they're stalled out. You know, they've been successful, mm-hmm. they've got some revenues, but they're stalled out, and they need mm-hmm. to get going. And one of the things you've told me is that people stop, they don't stay on track. They'll get to a certain point, and then they'll just stop. And uh, mm-hmm. there's certain patterns that successful people run into and just knowing a few of these things being aware of them can make all the difference in the world and the thing about where i talked about rather than do do just one monster meeting and make a uh, a big or event and make a big killing if you do it continually you get the efforts uh your efforts can compound and grow you can get better and better and better you can get bigger and bigger and bigger it's kind of like annual sales for Nike, you know, how they went up. Why would they stop selling? You think Nike, after 25 years and getting up to uh, uh, $34 billion in sales from starting with uh, under a billion, eight, 88, uh, uh, what was that, $877 million to uh, mm-hmm. 9.2 in 10 years, and now they're over $34 billion. You think You think they're going to wake up next year and say, hey, We've sold enough shoes. We're not going to sell any shoes anymore. We're going to st- we're going to start selling flannel shirts. No, mm-hmm. they're going to be selling shoes, folks. Apple's going to be selling iPhones. You know, Google's going to be selling advertising. They're going to keep mm-hmm. selling it because they get better and better at it. Uh, it compounds, and they know if they stay on track, stay fresh. They're going to get the benefit of all that goodwill out there, all that brand name, all that, all that uh, expertise they've developed. And so that's why you want to keep on track and keep doing it. And you throw all that away when you stop. But talk about that for a minute. Uh, yeah, Larry, I, I will. Have, uh, you and I have been frustrated yeah. about that for a long time, about people who just they get mm-hmm. going and then they get off track. They, like, lose their way. Yeah, I've, I've, I, that's one of the biggest uh, things that happens for people we work with. Uh, for example, you know, they, they might have started a business, they might have worked really hard on it, and then what they do is, for some reason or the other, maybe they just thought they were awesome now, or you know, maybe because they have, you know, they have a successful business, they've, you know, they've, uh, I don't know what it is, Larry, but point is, for some reason or the other, they get sidetracked. You know, they, they, they lose focus on what made them great, you know, and what ends up happening is they stop doing what makes them great and what makes them successful. And eventually what happens is they slowly go down. One of the biggest things that we do for clients is we sit them down. We have like a day, two-day meeting, whatever, whatever it takes. We figure out exactly what makes them successful. In some cases, they can't even tell us what makes them successful. They just subconsciously do it, right? And what happens is when they get subconsciously distracted by something else, they stop subconsciously doing the thing that made them successful. So what we do is we sit them down. We figure out what makes them successful, what gives them the, the value and the success and everything else. And we make sure that whatever that thing that they're doing that makes them successful is happening, whether they want to do it or not, uh, you know, whether they want to do it themselves, meaning, you know, some people are like, oh, yeah, I never realized this is what makes all the money. Uh, okay, let me now focus on this. 
Or what we help them do is we help them uh, find some people who are like, you know, shall we say employees. We create operational manuals and say, hey, listen, this thing right here that, you know, makes this business work and makes the business all this money, your job is to do this. Make sure this happens every single day. The owner of the business or the founder may not be all that interested in doing that anymore, right? It's like uh, the best way I can explain that is it's like, you know, flipping burgers or McDonald's. You know, the owner doesn't do that anymore, but he pretty much has a lot of people doing it for him because he knows it makes him money. So that's kind of the best way to explain that. So you operationalize the thing that makes the money you know, for the business, and that's how we make sure that they're successful. Another thing also that really happens is a lot of people just lose focus. I don't know what it is. They might have like an internal goal that they've set them for themselves, and once they reach it, they just forget all about what they did, and they, they, they put themselves in a, in a way that is beyond them. Like I had a friend of mine who, said, who actually verbalized this and told me this, which was, uh, you know, I can't be asked to do that anymore. Like he does certain things, he does uh, certain releases and certain marketing in a certain way that makes him, you know, revenue. But he's like, yeah, I cannot be asked to do that anymore. And uh, and guess what happened to him <laughs> afterwards? Uh, well, uh, two or through fast forward two or three months, uh, he ended up, you know, closing down the business uh, and the money that he made over, you know, uh, over the lifetime of that business sustained him for like another couple years. But then now, guess what he's come back to doing? He's come back to doing the thing that he said he can't be asked to do a couple of years before because he know that's the only thing that works. You see what I mean? So, uh, so the biggest thing that we do is to figure out what works and no matter what, the thing that works needs to be done. It needs to be done every single day, whether you're the person doing it or someone else is doing it or someone's helping you. But that thing right there that makes the revenue come in and you know, makes you successful needs to be done every single day without fail. And uh, the moment you lose focus on that, the moment you lose conviction on that thing that works, well, uh, that's kind of the beginning of the end. Uh, there's a reason why I hold marketing in the highest reverence, uh, you know, that I do because it is it is a thing that sustains everything in my life and everything that you know everything in my employee's life and so on and so forth. So it, it matters a lot, you know, in terms of uh, how it's done, how well it's executed, so on and so forth. So that's my thoughts on that, Larry. What do you think? Well, the thing is that you. You know, of course you're going to get bored. Any One thing to realize, you're going to make a million dollars, you're going to have some repetitive function in there. You're going to have, you basically find a niche skill or a niche product and you do it over and over and over and over again. That's the kind of the combo uh, thread of similarity that runs through people that make, you know, are super successful. They have a niche and they do it over and over and over, but you can get tired of it. And so what, the thing to do, the, the simple guideline that we've learned in our business is you can't move up and move away to a – you can't pr- basically promote yourself up until you have seven to ten people that you have taught that skill to. But if you've got seven to ten people in your McDonald's that they can flip hamburgers and they can run the register, then you kind of, that's the first step of training those people where you can say, now I'll move to another position because they won't all be working the same day. You know, you have to space it out, but you'll have two or three of them up there at all times that can do it. Now, for me, I like to hedge my bets 
And so for every one solid person I needed, I tried to have uh, three. So instead of seven to ten, I tried to have 20 to 30 so I could play the odds. You know, I like to overdo. And uh, mm-hmm. But the thing is, you don't have to do it yourself. You probably get sick, sick of repetitive function, like milking the cows every day, but uh, it's still got to be done. If you're in the dairy business, somebody's got to milk, milk the cows. And so until you train people, break it down like, how do, how do I do this stuff? Let me get a system. Let me teach some people that are reliable. Get at least 7 to 10. I'm going to have to be doing it myself. And uh, because otherwise, I'm going to slide right back down that pole. And you know what? It's easy. Uh, when you let your grip get off what you're doing, you can slide down the flagpole back down to the bottom very, very quickly. And that's why one thing that's always uh, principle in my book that you always gravitated to right from the beginning is the overdue principle. And uh, mm-hmm. Uh, after thinking about this for such a long time, why do you think that that overdue principle is so important? I would say, Larry, uh, I would just point out what you just mentioned a couple seconds ago, which was, uh, okay, so let's let's take that for a second, a moment ago. So you, Larry, are not a, in my eyes, you're not a normal person, right? Normal people cannot do what you do. That's just a fact. If they can, you know, they'd be on this podcast, not you. You know, I'd be talking to them, not you, right? So there's not a lot of people I know who can say, oh, yeah, I have, you know, $4.6 billion under management. That's not a million dollars. That's $4.6 billion. Like, take that imagine that for a second right like that's it's a lot of money you know and that was built over time it was not a one-time thing that happened over a year as that's a long you know uh, a lot of work that's happened over you know countless years i would say like over your life but that's one thing that's really huge now second thing is what you mentioned earlier which was uh you know if i'm going to teach people i'm going to not only teach three people if i need three people i'm going to do it for seven Right? I'm going to teach seven people to do the thing that makes the money right? and brings in the revenue. That's, that's the key, I think. A lot of people, what they do, normal people that I've met, if they run a million-dollar-year business, what they'll do is they'll try to do everything themselves, or they'll probably hire like one other person and, or two other people and teach them and then keep that going. But they will not hire seven people and say, listen, I only need three people to do this, but I need you guys, seven people, all of you to overdo and basically put all of your time, effort, energy to do this thing that makes this business work, right? A lot of people don't do that. And that, I think, is a big distinction that you just pointed out, which is in terms of why overdoing is important, that's why. You know, if, if it is important, it needs to be done not done by one person or three people it's better be done by seven people eight people even 10 people heck 20 people you know what i mean like overdoing that thing that works is never gonna you know never gonna really hurt you so that's number one i think number two in terms of why overdoing is super important is uh a lot of people don't do anything (laughs) that's kind of that's kind of the 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 gist of that they they're so uh you know, uh, caught up in like what other people are doing and what other people's scorecards are, what they're doing right now, or they're gossiping about their friends and X, Y, Z. But if you look at their own lives, they don't actually do, end up doing anything. So if, just by you doing anything at all, you kind of put yourself, you know, a couple of points ahead of the people who don't do anything and just talk about stuff, right? And then when you actually start figuring out what works and what doesn't and start focusing on things that do work, 
and then overdoing those things. Not only focus on them and do them and like, you know, you know, like I'll do it four hours a day. No, no, no. You do it eight hours a day, give someone else, bring someone else in to do it like with you for 16, and then bring four more people to do it with you like, and that 16 becomes whatever that is. Like it becomes like 80 hours or not 80, but like 20, 30 hours a day, give or take on average, if they all overdo with you on the things that work and the things they need to be focusing on, right? That's what makes a business grow because you, you can add more people at any time you want depending on how and what works. So yeah, I think that is super important. Now, when you keep overdoing stuff over an extended period of time, uh, People outside of you, like people who are like your friends and stuff, they won't really notice the noticeable difference. Like they won't really notice the difference immediately. But over a year, two years, guess what? You will be like the 1% of your industry. You know what I mean? And uh, at that point, you will get all the rewards. Like life is, uh, shall we say, a little bit unfair. The people who are at the 1% get like 80, 90% of the rewards in some cases in some markets. The rest of them get the you know, the table scraps, which is, uh, which is kind of bad. And I, that's why I think, Larry, overdoing is so important. And, uh, you know, like not only like waking up, uh, you know, and doing it like, you know, half, uh, like with, the, with your heart half in it, it's better to do it with everything you got, plus bring more people to do the thing with you and then get more people to help you out. And by doing that, you're going to end up with really superior results that other people just will not get, will not see at all. Like, if, for example, if a normal person comes into your business and they see it and they're like, oh, yeah, these people are working on some stuff, uh, just like in my office, they work on stuff. But little do they know that what you're working on and the intensity and the effort that you're putting in is completely different from what they do and how they do it. So, yeah. And now the thing is with life being unfair, the takeaway for that is people approach their business, their life, uh, it's unfair in the sense of the disproportionate high returns that that are given to the people at the top. One way of looking at that is life is perfectly fair because only one person out of 100 will drive themselves that much. And so the other side of it is you could say, you know, you got to mm-hmm. have the one person who, uh, like Tiger Woods, I've got a friend who uh, – is a club fitter for Tiger Woods. And he just, you know, he'll spend days talking to Tiger Woods. And Tiger, Tiger, he'll mm-hmm. look him in the eye and say, the reason I beat all those, uh, I beat everybody when I started coming up was nobody else worked as hard. He said, I would work, I would have six practice sessions a day. I, I get up mm-hmm. before light in the morning. I work till dark at night. And I knew I was out working him, and he put, you know, he he put meticulous detail in every single thing. And uh, they talk about the things he did with to analyze how to get the best performance just out of a shoe. You know, he's got like seventy five mm-hmm. different modifications he does on the shoes that Nike is not allowed to put on any shoes they make for the public, but they do for Tiger Woods because. He knows what gives him a little advantage. Same way when Lance Armstrong was winning all the Tour de France uh, bicycle races, they got him on the steroids, but he was fanatical about 
uh, having the bikes down to the lightest weight and the best material, the most aerodynamic everything, and the diet down, looking for one-tenth of one percent improvement because he knew those were the things that gave you an, over a 21, 22-day race that gave you that little extra foot of space to put you out in front of people, you know, the margin. So they put the, the, the energy into it. So one way of looking at it, Vignesh, is that the people, uh, life is fair because most people not push themselves that to get that refined and that sharp and that focus. But it's exciting for the people who do that. That opportunity is available for you. If you'll make that effort, you'll push it, then uh, you've got the chance to cash in on all of that. So, uh, you know, you can mm-hmm. make yourself special by how you approach things. And that's the message of the Million Dollar Mastermind podcast is that you can control through your thinking and your activity where you go in life. And that, that, that's pretty exciting once you get that concept down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, w- one quick last thing I want to mention about this uh, is really important, at least personally for me, is one of the biggest people or the most successful people that I personally admire is Bill Gates. So if you look, he's uh, been super successful for the last, what, 40 years now? <laughs> so he's been there. He's stayed on the top, uh, and he's given away like what, $40 billion to charity. Uh, that's pretty pretty epic in any way, shape, or form. If you look at it, most people can't even make $40 billion. He's given away $40 billion, so that's uh, pretty good. Now, let's look at what he's done in his own life, You know how he's applied some of these principles in his own life, right? Uh, if you look, the first thing he did was he didn't just say, oh, you know what, I'm going to go and get into, blindly get into software, you know, see what's happening. Like He just didn't do that. He didn't just say, oh, I'm going to blindly drop out of college and then go start this business. I'm going to flounder around for you know, a couple of years and see what happens. And if it doesn't work out, I'm going to come back to college. No, he didn't think like that. What he did was he, at 19 years old, saw the Altair 8080 on a, you know, uh, a magazine. right? And uh, to Larry's distinction, uh, uh, the Altair was basically invented by Cousin Ed. Right, Larry? Yeah, my cousin. My- my older cousin Ed, he invented the personal computer. Pretty much. That's, so uh, that's that's where uh, Bill Gates and Paul Allen started Microsoft at nineteen twenty years old, out in Albuquerque. Yeah. Yeah. So that is a distinction not many people have either. <laughs> you know, not only Larry successful, but his family has a really powerful lineage, right? So there's that. Okay, going back to the story with uh, with Bill Gates here. So what happened was the Altair was powerful. But the thing is, the Altair did not have a programming language at that time. So what Bill Gates did and Paul Allen did was Paul Allen was like, yeah, let, let us build you a programming language for the Altair. And that was Microsoft's first big project. That's when Microsoft actually started in 1975. And they pretty much created the programming language for the Altair. So that's kind of the first thing that they did. Now, this would not have happened if Bill Gates was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to like, you know, try to do this software thing because I like it and it may work, may not work. No, he was really careful 
you can even say opportunistic, but that's not the right word here, but he was really careful and he saw the whole field of what was working in the marketplace. What was people, like what, what did people really want at that point? And that's what he worked on. The second thing, second big project that he worked on was the soft card for Apple IIs. Now, Apple I came out, you know, when Apple was just starting. Apple I failed miserably and no one really wanted to work with Apple at all at that point. But then what they did was they looked at what was broken and they fixed it and then they launched Apple II. Now, one of the things that Apple II did was it was a great personal computer, personal user device. It was really great at doing that. But the thing that it did not or cannot do was it couldn't run Office devices and documents and Excel and things like that. At that point, Excel was not even called Excel, by the way. So it just called spreadsheets, right? So what Bill Gates did was he saw the field again. So he sat down, took a moment and saw, okay, in this market right now, Apple's up and coming and they need to run Office applications. So what he did was he actually went and met with Steve Jobs and what ended up happening was uh, they worked out a deal where Microsoft would supply what's called soft cards. Soft cards are basically a, now they call it plugins, like, you know, like a computer has a plugin, you plug something in and it just works. Well, a soft card was a plugin for the Apple II exclusively. So much of uh, uh, Microsoft's initial revenue came from soft cards being sold to Apple users, Apple II users, pretty much. And that built the company up to where they were making 2 to $2.5 million a year in revenue, right? And back in the 1980s, that was actually a significant chunk of money, not unlike where it is today. Now, the third big move that they did, so they were doing really well selling soft cards to, uh, you know, Apple users. Then what they ended up doing also was they had a meeting with the IBM, and this is the famed meeting that everyone likes to talk about. What they don't realize is this meeting came after six years of Bill Gates working 16-hour days to do those other two things I just mentioned. So it wasn't like he woke up one day and he did the Altired magically just you know, manifested with the programming language and magically just manifested with the soft card. No, he worked really hard to make that <laughs> all happen, right? So... Next came the IBM deal. The IBM deal where uh, basically Bill Gates and sat in front of people and, uh, you know, on the IBM board and he was talking about his programming language for IBM clone PCs. And IBM basically said, no, we don't want a programming language. We want an operating system. So uh, Bill Gates pretty much said, oh, I, can, I have one, which he actually didn't. So <laughs> he went down the street in Seattle and actually bought an, you know, uh, bought a, OS from uh, someone named Greg. I forget his last name. Uh, uh, we'll we'll dig that up. The point is he basically bought uh, the first version of an operating system from Greg for about $50,000. And what ended up happening was pretty much he finished it. So it didn't just, he didn't just take the operating system and just slap it into IBM. And no, he had to work like another year to, to kind of polish it up, make sure it worked, and that became Microsoft DOS, right? And Microsoft DOS, uh, and he also did a really smart move here. So he didn't get caught up in the weeds and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to sell this, and this is the, you know, the end of you know, the biggest deal ever. I'm going to focus on this. No, what he did was he pretty much made a deal with IBM and said, I will sell Microsoft DOS to whoever I want. I won't just make an exclusive deal with you which then netted them, I believe, $340 million 
in wealth, right? Now Microsoft became wealthy, as they call it, right? And uh, that is a really important thing. Now, the next move came in when uh, Windows was basically invented. So pretty much everyone knows, uh, you know, Xerox invented the Alto. The Alto pretty much became Macintosh and Windows down the line. Now, it didn't mean that, you know, like the, they looked at the Alto and the Alto like had everything perfect. Finishing the Alto took another couple years of work and, you know, uh, and Microsoft came out with Windows and Windows was really successful out in the marketplace, right? Now, here's the thing that most people don't know about Windows either. Up until, uh, you know, version number three of Windows, Windows was really just like you can point and click a couple things, but didn't, it wouldn't even work really well. It was not even that uh, useful, right? So up until version 3, it didn't work so well. So what happened was there was a 12-year gap between him uh, you know, creating Windows and Windows being quote-unquote successful. So Windows version 1 came out, and then Windows 95 came out. When 95 came out, so a 12-year gap, when 95 came out, that's when everyone started hearing about it. Yeah, Windows is great. Everyone's using Windows. Windows is awesome. And then Bill Gates became like the richest person ever and so on and so forth. Now, the thing is, he didn't stop there. He went on to take the same methodology and, and things that he did for not only the you know, personal computer space, but he did it in the gaming space with uh, Xbox. He did it in the Internet space with Internet Explorer. Right? Internet Explorer is the past version of Chrome right now. So if you were to kind of go back and look, it, that's what it is. So uh, you know, Google basically looked at what Internet Explorer was doing, Firefox was doing, and then made a lighter version of that, and that became Chrome, which everyone uses today. But Internet Explorer kind of started all that. Right? So that's one of the things. Now, another thing that people don't know about Bill Gates, I guess, in terms of how he overdoes stuff is a lot of people think, oh yeah, Bill Gates made a lot of money. Uh, so what he did, and this is this is one of the this is one of the uh, best move business moves ever in history. But no one even knows that it happened. That's how awesome it is. So let's talk about this. So most people, what they think is, oh yeah, Bill Gates had this company. You know, he sold all of his stocks in Microsoft, and then now he's using that money for philanthropy. So he started his philanthropic you know, organization. Now he's spending all the money there. But what they don't know is Bill didn't do that. What he actually did was he took all the money. When Microsoft had about $5 billion in revenue, or actually not sorry about that, uh, Bill Gates had a net worth of $5 billion. What he did was he took all the excess money he had and he created something called Cascade Investments. Okay? And Cascade Investments is pretty much where a lot of Bill Gates' current worth and past net worth resides in, right? So he took all the money that he had from selling Microsoft stock and dividends and, you know, like whatever his share was that he was getting from the company, he put it into Cascade. And what Cascade does, it's basically run by uh, Michael Larson. He's CIO, Chief Investment Officer. Bill Gates is, you know, a chairperson of that company or chairman of the company. It was started in 1995, okay? So right around... Okay, right around Windows you know, 95 came out, he started an investment company. Now, he took all the money that he had and slowly converted a lot of his money over to Cascade, right? And by the time he retired in the 2000, you know, early 2000s, right, 
What ended up happening was all of his net worth that he had from selling Microsoft stock went into Cascade. And now guess what happens? If you look at the, and this is something that I discovered by accident actually, but if you go and look, Bill Gates' net worth goes up every single year, right? Every single year his net worth goes up. Actually, every single month it goes up. And I was like, how can his net worth keep going up when he actually sold all of his Microsoft stock? Yeah, I understand if Microsoft stock goes up and his net worth is tied to it, it makes perfect sense. But how does it go, keep going up when he owns less than 1% of Microsoft? Well, uh, what happens at Cascade is uh, Michael Larson makes, him, makes Bill Gates so much money that he cannot give away money fast enough which is really interesting <laughs> if you think about it. So Cascade owns like uh, the Four Seasons Hotel, part of Four Seasons Hotel. It owns like uh, Colab, Ecolab. It owns Berkshire Hathaway. It owns like a lot of different shares in different companies. And the money and the revenue that's generated from those companies and investments pretty much goes to philanthropic uh, organizations. Right? So even though he's giving away a lot of money and he can't give away the, the money fast enough, he is still making money and he will still remain one of the richest people even 100 years into the future, you know, long after his death, I would say. Because the way he set things up, the way he's uh, thought about his life, the way he's thought about what works in the marketplace, how hard he has to work for it, and so on and so forth. And right within this time, I actually did some math with my uh, staff members uh, a couple of weeks ago. He actually worked for about 36 years to build all this give or take. So it wasn't like he started something and it worked really well. It took him a 30, all of this was built over a 36-year period. Now, people like Mark Zuckerberg and all these other folks, they've basically taken what Bill Gates has done and fast-tracked it you know, from 30 years to like maybe 15, 20 years or 10 years in some cases. But that is a really great example of how some of these concepts were implemented. Yes, Larry? Yeah, and the thing it is that that plays back into our theme here of thinking about what you're doing and setting yourself up for success. And I would imagine it's his good friend Warren Buffett that gave him a lot of that insight that allowed him to set that thing up that way, don't you think? I would say so, Larry, yes. That would definitely have been a big, <laughs> a big part of that for sure. And so he leveraged off of his friendship with Warren Buffett. You know, it's like, who are your friends? I mean, who do you, you know, what friends are you cultivating? And you might not have any real knowledgeable, influential friends now, but are you doing the kind of things where two, three, four, five, ten years from now, you're going to be in those circles? You know, are you, are you working? Are you headed to be in a situation where you can have some of those kind of friends or some that kind of influence? And just something to think about. But also you brought out the point about Zuckerberg and some of these other uh, guys coming up behind him. And whereas Gates learned from Buffett, they're learning from Gates and compressing timeframes. And so that's, mm -hmm. that technique uh, is available to all of us if we'll just take the time to think about what we really want out of our lives and see who has been able to do that, what techniques did they use, what was their thinking, what was their tools, what were their resources, and start to move yourself over to get in line with their winning pattern. Because winning follows certain strategies, winning follows 
winning pattern. So go ahead. Yeah. In terms of summarizing this, Larry, I would say uh, this is probably a really important uh, point here. A lot of people that I know in my life, uh, even though they're successful people, they don't even know any of the things we just talked about. Like even half of the things we just talked about, they don't really know, right? If you ask them, hey, can you tell me what are the movies that are coming in the next couple months? They know. They know when like comic book characters were invented. They know like what's the next movie for that comic book character. When you ask them, hey, can you tell me uh, what the next move of this billionaire can be, right? In most cases, they don't even know the billionaire. They don't even know what the billionaire did to be successful. They don't even know what the next move is. But they know all these irrelevant things about, oh, yeah, this celebrity right here is getting married, and they're getting, like, you know, X, Y, Z, and this, that, and the other. And I'm like, is that going to help you in any way, shape, or form? <laughs> like, it's not. So if, if 70% of your life is going to be spent working, and it's going to be in the pursuit of, you know, uh, basically getting revenue and money in so you can sustain your life, it will be useful to look at people who have done that uh, a thousandfold better than you have and learning from them. So my logic has always been if I can do one, uh, one-tenth of the percent of what Bill has done, I would be pretty set for life, you know what I mean? <laughs> or what Mark has done for his life, right? So I would... Uh, it would pay very well to like look at what these folks have done and do a little bit of what they've done, and it would be really useful for you know your entire life. And your life gets a lot easier because uh, these people, some of these folks that we've been talking about, say Bill Gates, is one of the smartest people to ever live. Like his IQ is like off the charts, right? And he's actually translated that into uh, really great success, but. Uh, yeah, it's, it's good to learn from people who are super successful and not to learn from people who don't have any clue what they're talking about, shall we say. <laughs> so that would be my takeaway, Larry, or summary of the whole thing. Yeah, the idea is to live your life with purpose. You know, once you decide what you really want, uh, you can steer, start steering yourself in that direction and you can use these use other people and other techniques and other systems people have done as your guideposts to get, get you in the right area. But the exciting thing is, even if you only improve each day by 1%, which wouldn't be a huge improvement, over a week, that's going to add up. Over a month, you know, if you're pushing to improve, all, yeah, that's the ABI principle I talk about in Chapter 5 of my book, Always Be Improving. And you have, the, you have the attitude that things can always be better, looking around, how can, I, how can we get things better? How can we do things quicker, faster, better? And you, set, you only get a 1% improvement. Uh, that adds up. And over a week, month, year, it actually it becomes a way of life one year after another. All of a sudden, you start to skyrocket past all of the people that you used to be even with, and they look around and say, what happened to this guy, this guy or this, this girl? How, how do they do it? Well, it's happening in plain view, but it's happening with a little bit more focus, a little bit more intensity, a little bit more thought about what's going on and uh it's kind of like the bible says redeeming the time you know you're you're uh not wasting 
you're just using a little bit more of the time for, you know, your intended results. And these things, you know, if you steer your car to the left, you're going to go to the left. If you steer your car to the right, you're going to go to the right. So if you steer your life in the direction of success, you're going to have more success. And uh, uh, that's the message of what we're doing here. So, uh, Vignesh, thanks so much. Do you have a parting shot that you want to give everybody here? Um, I don't think so, Larry. I think I've uh, passed on my parting shot already. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks so much, Vignesh, for being on and doing this. I'm, you know, I've wanted to do this for quite a while. And uh, Thank you as well, Larry. Thank you for having me. It has been my highest honor to be on this podcast and help anyone who's listening. Uh, yeah, I think uh, you guys take care, and I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Million Dollar Mastermind with me, Larry Wydell. If I've helped you in any way, leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. For more information like this, listen to our other Million Dollar Mastermind episodes and check out my Wydell Academy YouTube channel and visit us on WydellOnWinning.com. I'm the Million Dollar Mastermind, and until next time, go, go, go.